welcome to the new season of Parallel Justice, brought to you by the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. I'm Renee Williams, your host for this series. This season, we will dive into the realities of our criminal justice system through exclusive interviews with expert attorneys who took on cases that dominated headlines. We will investigate civil justice sought for criminal acts and examine the ways that the civil justice system has forced change and made society safer. The topics we discuss may be disturbing and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics are triggering and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. Confidential, compassionate support is available at victimconnect.org. The views expressed in the following podcast are those of our guests who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable. However, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center. We acknowledge that even though these views may be controversial, we know silence, especially on tough issues, only enables wrongdoers and perpetuates abuse. Our goal in these discussions is to bring these issues to light and make victims aware of the systems available to them. Please enjoy the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. I'm your host, Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Crime Victim Bar Association and the National Center for Victims of Crime. Now, if you joined us last week, you heard rock star attorney Carrie Goldberg out of Brooklyn describe a case that she took on that involved mistaken identity, stolen identity, and some pretty terrifying allegations where folks were able to use tech to continuously harass and abuse a woman, ultimately leading to a false imprisonment. This week, we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about how Carrie took on one of the big ones, as we called them, one of the most popular apps that's out there right now. So Carrie, I want to talk about the case of Herrick versus Grinder. Can you tell me what happened here? What happened here? So Matthew Herrick, um, he at the time, um, this was in 2016, was a, he lived in Manhattan. He was a hyphenate. He was a, a waiter slash model slash actor. And he had just gotten out of an abusive relationship and his ex just went on a scorched earth campaign of retaliation, doing all sorts of things, uh, breaking into his bank accounts, um, registering accounts to him, um, physically stalking him outside of his home. Uh, But the most pernicious and invasive thing that, that Matthew's ex did was impersonate him on the dating app Grindr, which ironically is where the two of them had met. Using pictures of Matthew, um, his ex would then solicit sex dates with strangers and then direct them to Matthew's home and to his job. This wasn't just a, this happened a couple times. This happened over 1200 times where a stranger would show up in person uh, thinking that they, they were there to have sex with, with Matthew, consensual sex. Um, oftentimes, what was scary, right, was it was a rape fantasy. Oftentimes the, the profiles and the DMs uh, that, the, that Matthew's ex would send would, would say that Matthew had rape fantasies and um, that he was you know, all on all fours with his ass lubed. They were extremely graphic. Sometimes they would say that Matthew had, had drugs, uh, free drugs to share. Other times uh, the ex would 
um, say racist and homophobic things as Matthew so that people would come ready to, to fight. Matthew, you know, had signs in his, in his building saying, hey, if, if, if you're sent um, to apartment 2L um, through Grindr, um, it's a hoax, please. I'm not actually interested in, in, in sex. And his ex found out about those signs and then said, hey, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, you know, pretend like I'm not into it and just ignore the signs. Just keep buzzing. Don't stop buzzing. Or like follow someone else into the building and then just wait for me in the stairwell. It would, I mean, in, in just in the time that we're recording this, can you imagine if, if maybe four times your, your buzzer rings and it's somebody who's there to have sex with you? That's how, brutal, that's how brutal frequent. Sex. I mean, there was one, one day where it happened 23 times a day and not set, you're right. Like this was, this was Matthew being set up to be raped, if not, if not killed. Mm -hmm. uh, there were several times that Matthew or his roommate got in skirmishes um, where the, the person who came was not going, you know, not interested in taking no. Um, fortunately, thank God, Matthew was never sexually assaulted, but he lost his, his peace. I mean, his entire world was taken over by, by these visitors and it lasted. Um, I mean, it was a year before Matthew's ex was actually arrested. And he went to the police. He went to the police. And they didn't times. really react. He no, they told him to to take it like a man. I mean, he was uh, he was discriminated against as a man um, by the police. Uh, he also had gotten an order of protection against his ex, um, and you know, which obviously had been violated, and the police didn't care about that. By the time we got involved, there really was no option left besides going after Grinder. Grinder was in the exclusive position to stop this. There had been two other apps um, that his ex had been using and both of them responded to Matthew flagging the accounts and telling them, hey, I'm being impersonated. Um, but I, I think he flagged them. He, he thinks like 50 times uh, the, the, the different accounts and, and, and Matthew's ex would just keep creating new ones. And even if, if uh, Grinder took them down. And so his ex, there were, there were criminal actions or is he still? Like a year later. Okay. Um, the the uh, Manhattan DA was extremely slow. I mean, and it's just another thing that we deal with a lot on when, when crimes are facilitated by tech is that law enforcement isn't always, it's, a, it's hit and miss whether law enforcement has the uh, capability, the bandwidth, the interest and the uh, technological prowess to be subpoenaing tech platforms, which which they should be doing right away at the time that, that a crime is reported. Um, but also the ability to, we had already, we were deep into the case when uh, one of the DAs on the case asked us uh, how to serve a warrant on Grindr. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, so let's get to that. Grinder didn't take anything down. Grinder took absolutely no action. Well, they, they, they would apply. sometimes they would sometimes take something down, but then a, a replacement profile would go back up. So, and they did they ever contact Matthew directly? Did they ever Just say like, off. "How do we help you?" Oh no, nothing personalized. There were some automated "thank you for reporting this" type of you know responses to Matthew. 
And so you filed, how did you proceed against Grindr? And, and I think this is interesting because what were their kind of, what were their defenses and their cop-outs? Well, the main problem was that uh, they just, they didn't take us seriously. We, um, we sent a demand letter to them just asking for help. Um, I mean, it wasn't even a demand letter. It was just a, a Hail Mary letter saying, hey, this is happening to our client. This is an emergency situation. Can you please help? At the time, I was like fresh off of working um, collaboratively with, with a bunch of tech platforms. And so I, I went into the whole situation quite arrogantly and thought, okay, I'm just gonna call up Grindr's general counsel and say, hey, we've got, a, we've got this malicious user. We need your help you know, figuring out his IP address so that you can just ban him. Um, because he keeps he keeps trying to just hoodwink you all. You ban one account and he just pops up a new one. But but you need to figure out how to um, you need to just do do what the other, these other platforms have done and 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 recognize his his um, the the devices instead of just the the, the profiles. Um, and they totally ignored me. Uh, and so we um, did what I do for a lot of my clients, which is get a restraining order. And we got a judge to sign an order that banned, um, that basically that was against Grinder and says that said that they had to ban this user and to figure out how to do it. Grinder ignored that. Finally, though, they they uh, removed the case to federal court and they um, went on the record saying that they didn't actually have the technology to ban a user. I'm like, what? How? You are How? one of the biggest, the biggest hookup apps around. And it's an arithmetic certainty that sometimes your app is going to be used by rapists and predators and, and stalkers. And if you've not designed into it a way to ban those people, then you have released a dangerous product into the market. So we said, this is, this is no different than a car without brakes. Uh, this is a dangerous product. And so we went back to our office and my co-counsel was, was Tor Eklund and we amended the, the complaint to turn this into a product liability case. And I was already really familiar with section 230, uh, which, which says that tech platforms cannot be sued or they're immune from liability for the um, content that their users post. So we were really, really careful um, mm -hmm. in our complaint to not be suing Grinder for any of the content or the conduct. We were, you know, pretty focused on this being about Grinder's misconduct, Grinder's failures to uh, apply its own terms of service and failure to warn. Um, however, <laughs> the judge did not see things our way. There was no precedent that um, was against us on, a, on uh, a case against a platform. This was a pretty pioneering legal theory to hold a platform liable. At the time, we were, had to even make the case that this was a product and not a service. And so the, the judge said, no, no, no. The fact is that even though you're suing, you know, saying that this is a dangerous product, everything emanated from the content of this one malicious user. The judge, the judge said, no, it all emanates from the yeah. original content. Yes, the judge said that everything originated from the original um, content of, of um, the abuser. And so therefore, no matter 
what our our claims against Grinder was they were protected um, from Section 230. So this leads to a lot of really important questions that, that I've been having with folks lately that we've been having within NCBC and outside of NCBC. What responsibility do these tech companies have to protect their victims? How far should they be expected to go? Well, in my opinion, they have, I mean, it is their job to protect users. Um, they're their customers. And of course, many of them don't see the users as their customers. They're, they see their advertisers as their customers and the users are just the, the uh, in our case, we appealed to the second circuit and then petitioned the Supreme Court to, um, they, the Supreme Court denied um, our, our petition as they do for 99% of, of um, petitioners. Um, but then a couple years later, um, I guess last summer, summer of 2020, um, Justice Clarence Thomas of all people um, made, wrote a, a decision, which was a response to a different Section 230 case, which also was denied, but he, he did something unusual and, and wrote actually a decision about why he was denying that particular case, but felt that the issue of tech liability needed to come to the Supreme Court because tech was pleading for immunity for things like child sexual abuse materials being circulated and things like stalkers um, using products and those products um, and, and the platform saying that, that they're immune even for product liability cases. And lo and behold, he cited Herrick v. Grinder. <laughs> Um, that was a real vindicating moment. Um, and also that theory now has been really successful in other places. Like, like that theory succeeded in California uh, in a case against SNAP. And we're using it again in Oregon in a case against Omegle. Um, but, but I think like, what is the, the moral responsibility? What is the legal responsibility? The moral responsibility I feel is very, very high um, because tech products, do everything from disseminate child pornography to um, sell users guns and and fentanyl laced pills. Uh, we have a case setting up human trafficking. Yes, for children. Human trafficking for children. Uh, we have a case against Amazon for their um, selling of. So many people were buying the suicide product that the algorithm actually started also recommending. A suicide pill book, a product that made it easier to consume this particular powder that we were suing about. So these these companies are are doing life and death stuff. Well, there. I mean, even on a basic level, Grinder, Craigslist, everything, encouraging and allowing the discussion of rape fantasies. I mean, everyone's entitled to their own sexual proclivities. You are, but it's a little terrifying that these tech companies are allowing people to encourage people to go rape others and doing it under the guise of oh it's a fantasy because here for Matthew and for Angela what if somebody did take that seriously and the fact that somebody could take it seriously was actually used by Angela to even go further with framing Michelle because it was such so plausible that 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 was actually the basis for for one of the crimes that Michelle was was charged with um and also you know, so many people are like, oh, this is catfishing. This is, this is, you see these as like online crimes. 
But both Matthew's case and Michelle's case show that you don't even have to be a user of any of these products. You can be completely removed and still have your life totally derailed by somebody who is using these products to, to, to um, against you. I mean, they are weapons. And we've been having, we, we've, we've come up with this term lately that is a term of art right now and it's a catchphrase for a lot of people, which is tech facilitated crime. Mm-hmm. And, and that term, I've got to be honest, it kind of scares me because one of the big questions has been whose responsibility is it to ensure beat cops are trained, that, that your local kind of driving around cops know what this is. And I'm like, well, if you call it tech facilitated crime, they're going to say not me because tech, it, it's just a way to commit a crime. It's not the crime itself. It's stalking, impersonation, um, sexual violence. It's not a tech facilitated crime. It's a crime. And so it's everybody's responsibility to be just like, I love the detective who just became a gumshoe and went and looked at the cameras and didn't get caught up in the fact that technology was being used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel, I get annoyed when people say, is this just an issue of technology not keeping up with the law? It's like, no, we've had stalking and sexual assault and com- even computer crimes for a very, very long time. It's just that we need we need our law enforcers to be fluent in 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 the material um, and in the evidence and and to see the see the patterns. And and I mean, I I really really believe that that um, tech companies need to be taxed for um, for making sure that law enforcers understand their products and um, and just like with our our tobacco companies where they had to put a certain you know have to budget toward keeping people from smoking and they have to be part of the solution we need that same sort of um, thing in you know from tech companies and I like that so how is Matthew today how is Michelle today how is Matthew today <laughs> so I want to say that they're both doing really well but I want to put an asterisk on that they're they're both extremely resilient people who have you know just sort of um, huge like reservoirs of of resilience mm-hmm. but um, but their their lives are haunted by by the trauma of of what they experienced and they both not only experienced the underlying trauma but they also had to then experience the alienation and complexity of, of the litigation. And these, these were both pretty high profile litigations. And you know, Michelle's ended with um, a sizable recovery and Matthew's ended with you know, pretty public failures um, and, and, you know, from a litigation perspective. But, but in, in both cases, you know, we, we were trying out new theories and it was important to us that our clients be able to survive the process, not just survive, but like thrive on on the process of the litigation. That's always important to us because, um, you know, if somebody's already alienated and isolated from everyone else in their life because they experienced something so unusual. Um, but then the, to add on the additional layer of litigation, uh, that just furthers their another thing that makes them different from everybody. They're they're fighting this 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 war for years. <laughs> Litigation is invasive. It is, it is, um, 
anxiety producing. And even if you have, you know, a, a principled um, goal, I mean, which all I, you know, all plaintiffs do in my opinion, um, it, it's still, it's still, I mean, discoveries how, um, you know, there's the really fun moment when you file it, where your story is the only one that's, that's really out there, but then, but then the motion to dismiss just <laughs> comes, you know, slaps you across the face right away. Um, so, but they're, they're both, they're both doing really well. Michelle started a, a business recently um, uh, in online commerce and fashion and, um, and Matthew's working on um, developing a podcast. And, and so I'm, I, That's awesome. I'm very inspired and. Mm -hmm. All right, well, that is about all the time we have for right now. Before we go though, I just wanna ask Carrie, is there, do you have any last thoughts or is there anything that you want our listeners to know or be conscious of going forward? Well, I would love everybody's help in um, going on the attack against us uh, for section 230. I mean, there's been so much um, discussion about reform. Um, I testified in Congress uh, in December about holding tech platforms uh, or removing their their immunity from from liability, and it's just it's it's the it's where the next generation of plaintiffs' work is going to be, um, and we can't have these companies that are the most powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, and wealthy companies in the history of the universe. We can't have them outside the 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 reach of our courts. It just is creating an increasing uh, differential of. of of power in our society, we need to be, you know, getting our, our plaintiffs to to be going after these these companies. And you know, this Section two hundred and thirty was a twenty six word law that was supposed to just be uh, stopping um, plaintiffs from suing platforms for defamation. And it's just become so bloated from case law that um, it, it now basically covers any kind of harm that happens on the internet including harm caused by the platforms. So the best, you know, we can be fighting Congress to change the laws, but, but we're all lawyers. And so, you know, just with one lawyer and one client, we actually have the power to be changing the law of the land and getting these cases uh, appealed when we don't like the outcomes. And, and, and so, you know, I think if we all do that collectively, we're going to get better case law or it's just gonna become, so uncomfortably bad that that it'll ignite Congress to to do something. It can't really get worse. We just need somebody to act. <laughs> yeah, or we need a collective to to be taking to be taking cases against tech. I love it. Well, Carrie, thank you again so much for joining us. For our listeners, as always, we will include Carrie's law firm in the show notes. So please check that out if you'd like to get a hold of her. And mm -hmm. thank you again for listening. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have questions about your rights after what you just heard, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association, which is the nation's first professional association of attorneys and expert witnesses dedicating to helping victims seek justice through the civil system. If you need a civil attorney, you can request one at victimbar.org. Parallel Justice is hosted by Renee Williams, edited by Cameron Saylor, and produced by Deidre Watford. 
Thank you again for joining us. Please tune in next week.